Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome back to another Beeson Podcast. Uh, Here at Beeson Divinity School, we have three endowed lectures that happen every year in the fall. During Reformation Week, it's Reformation Heritage Lectures. And in the spring, there are our William E. Conger Jr. Lectures on Biblical Preaching, and then one also on Biblical Studies. And today we're going to hear a lecture that was given by Dr. Craig Blomberg of Denver Seminary in the Biblical Studies series. Dr. Craig Blomberg is one of the leading scholars, evangelical scholars, really in the world today, particularly in the field of New Testament. He holds the Ph.D. from the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. Uh, He's taught at a number of schools before going to Denver and is a fantastic scholar and writer, written many books. Let me just mention two of his books that have meant a great deal to me personally in my own study of the Bible. One is called The Historical Reliability of the Gospels, and the other, Interpreting the Parables in Matthew. Today we hear this lecture by Dr. Craig Blomberg, delivered here at Beeson in 2009 as a part of our Biblical Studies lectures for that year, a lecture called Allegory or Analogy, What Are They Saying About Parables Today? Let's listen to our friend Dr. Craig Blomberg from the Beeson Biblical Studies Lectures in 2009. When uh, Dean George invited me almost a year ago to uh, do this lectureship, he said uh, people typically talk about something that um, they are currently working on. And at that time, I was trying to envision where I would be a year down the road. And I came close. Um, I understand that many of you have had introduction to biblical interpretation, shall we say, foisted on you, and that you are survivors. And I was told a little bit about a couple of parts that aren't assigned, which is fair enough since they weren't parts I wrote. but that you've at least had an extremely brief overview of uh, what people like to do with parables and what I like to do with parables. But uh, a year ago, I had hoped that by um, this time I would be well immersed into uh, what needs to be a substantial revision of interpreting the parables. It will be 20 years old next year. And um, as happens in life, maybe not to you, um, you get behind. And um, so I've been collecting a, a lot of reading material. I've been reading a little bit of it. I have been assigning... Uh, um, research assistants, uh, all kinds of tasks to uh, pave my way for what I now hope uh, will be uh, come uh, the beginning of summer, uh, a full immersion as a good Baptist into uh, this project. Um, So I don't come to you this week with brand new cutting edge dramatic controversial theories. Uh, I suspect I wouldn't have anyway. But uh, a lot has happened in the last 20 years, so this is a a progress report. This is an update. Uh, What are people saying today? Uh, What uh, should we think about what people are saying today? And the... uh, allegory or analogy part of the title will hopefully uh, be clear by the end of the talk, at which point um, we will have time for questions. Uh, Please, uh, if you don't think you can remember your question from when it first comes to you to when we throw it open, jot something down um, so that uh, we'll fill that time well. I've been given a remote that I've never worked or even tried, so I'm about to find out what happens when I push a button. Hey, it works. 
You'd be surprised how many times in life that does not happen. (laughs) Prior to the 20th century, chances are good that if you were an interpreter of Jesus' parables, you would look for numerous points of correspondence between the details of Jesus' stories and uh, a spiritual dimension or uh, symbolic meaning. Not only would the father in the prodigal son stand for God and the prodigal son, uh, any wayward person, and the older brother, any hard-hearted pharisaical type. But uh, the welcome when the prodigal returned with the ring would stand for baptism, and the robe, the new clothes of immortality, and the shoes uh, feet shod for the preparation of the gospel of peace, and the fatted calf obviously was the Eucharist. Even though the last time I checked, a calf isn't a lamb. And uh, similar uh, multiple points of correspondence between what uh, literary critics today call the vehicle, the storyline, like a, a car, that which takes you somewhere, and the, the tenor, the symbolic level of reading, would be postulated. There were occasional protests against this, in part at least, and, and some of the names are some of the all-stars of Christian history, like Irenaeus and Aquinas and uh, Calvin and, to a lesser degree, Luther and so on. But uh, for the most part, this was simply assumed as normal and in many parts of the world today and in some parts of our country where uh, Christian leaders have not been exposed to other ideas, this is still the norm. But at the turn of the 19th to the 20th century, A German scholar by the name of Adolf Ulicker, back when Adolf was still a respectable name for a German boy. (laughs) These are pre-Hitler years. Wrote a massive two-volume work in German, has never been translated into English, uh, one of the amazing omissions in the history of translation. If you uh, translate German well, Uh, your grandchildren will rise up and call you blessed if you create a translation, at least if they're scholars. Ulicker composed a, a detailed history, passage by passage, of the interpretation of each of Jesus' major parables and showed how multiple allegorical interpretations regularly conflicted with each other used anachronistic symbolism, went far beyond anything a first-century Jewish farmer living in Galilee could have ever been expected to understand, and therefore swung the pendulum to the opposite extreme, we might say, by affirming that parables make one and only one point and that they are as far removed from allegory as possible. One central point of comparison for the prodigal son, Ulicker said it teaches the boundless joy of God's forgiveness. Period. Anything else is illegitimate. As often happens in the history of scholarship, one extreme leading to a second leads to an attempt at mediating positions. And in broad brush strokes, most of 20th century parable interpretation at least 
through, say, the mid-1970s can be seen as a modified acceptance of Euliker. I've uh, changed the uh, three-sided incomplete rectangles into curved parabola-like shapes. Uh, people tried to smooth off Euliker's rough edges. Also, parabolas are nice for parables. They still accepted one main point. For the most part, no allegory. For the most part, but allowed for some exceptions. The longest of Jesus' narrative stories perhaps were as lengthy as they were because as they fell into multiple scenes, they did teach more than one point. The prodigal son could teach about God's lavish forgiveness without there ever being an elder brother. Maybe there's a second point there. Joachim Jeremias wrote a famous book on uh, the parables of Jesus, conceded that much. And then there are those two passages that have elaborate allegorical explanations, point-by-point -point explanations of the details of a story, the parable of the sower, the parable of the wheat and the tares. There's the story of the wicked tenants that is rich in detail, that, that cries out for the son who is killed and thrown out of the uh, vineyard to represent Jesus who is crucified outside the walls of Jerusalem. But for the most part, Euliker's wisdom, especially for the shorter, average-length, run-of-the-mill parable, was accepted. Then came the last quarter of the 20th century. People began to write books like Kenneth Bailey's wonderful two volumes on the parables of Luke, in which in light of Middle Eastern culture, he would conclude each chapter with uh, what he called a theological cluster of themes. And sometimes there would be two or three or four. Sometimes it would be a half a dozen, occasionally even more. It seemed that we were moving back to multiple points of comparison, but still within the framework of a unifying proposition, a central point where the distance between vehicle and tenor was not as great as it was elsewhere. But there may be supporting points as well, even if, as it were, the distance is a bit greater, they're not as uh, central to the focus of the parable. Some during this period, uh, as what today would be called postmodernism began to develop before the label itself had developed, began to argue that uh, parables as intentionally metaphorical open-ended, somewhat cryptic stories uh, could be susceptible to many valid interpretations. That in extreme cases, it was argued, one could interpret in an unlimited fashion. It was into that mix that a young 20-something would-be parable scholar began at the University of Aberdeen under I. Howard Marshall and realized maybe he should have picked a different topic. This was a huge field. I had no clue how much was written on it. And by the time I did, it was, I was too far gone. Um, to turn back and pick something different like Jude. <laughs> but 
Over the years, uh, what I suppose uh, someone might call a Blombergian proposal, began to emerge. It, it began in earnest. All scholars who spend really long times researching narrow topics, if they make any progress, are usually able to talk about those kairos moments when something dawns and you say, I might be on to something. And the first one of those for me was reading an article in Revue Biblique, a French Catholic priest, Jesuit, I think, but I'm not 100% sure of that, wrote a wonderful article on the parable of the prodigal son, but he read through the parable and commented on it three consecutive times first from the perspective of the prodigal, then from the perspective of the older brother, and finally from the perspective of the father. And different insights emerge depending on whose eyes you read the story through. When he came to the end, he said, as a result of this study, and this will be a paraphrase, I don't have the quotation memorized, and it was in French anyway, He said, as a result, here is the one central point of the parable. Just as the prodigal was welcomed home, no matter how far he had strayed, so the most wicked of all people will be welcomed by God if he or she repents. And then he had a semicolon and the word and. Just as the older brother was rebuked for his hard-heartedness, so God's people should never begrudge his generosity to the wayward. Semicolon. And then the third part of the uh, statement was uh, just as the uh, father showed unexpected lavish love and kindness toward both sons, so God treats mercifully the explicitly and implicitly wayward, period. And I read that and I said, that's it. That's the meaning of the parable. That's the approach. The man just can't count. That's not one point. That's three independent clauses just arbitrarily put together in one sentence with two semicolons and two ands. And then I began to wonder, is it just the prodigal son where that works? Right before the prodigal is the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin, identically structured, though much shorter. It could work there. Matthew 21, verses 28 to 32, sometimes just called the parable of the two sons. Man had a vineyard, told his sons to go and work in it. One said, I won't, but he went. The other said, I will, but he didn't, which was obedient. Obviously, the one who went, even though he first said he wasn't going. That's the prodigal son in miniature, just shorn of all the detail. That would work the same way. The little parable of the two debtors in Luke 7, the one forgiven more, loves more. And then there's a Pharisee who's forgiven less, like the older brother, and there's a a master of the house showing hospitality. That fits. And then I began to realize that uh, although there are plenty of parables that have more than just a master figure with two sons or two servants or two subordinates in some fashion... 
There are others that still fall into that kind of triangular structure when you recognize that several characters may function in a single role. Five foolish young women and five wise ones who are bridesmaids. But they're not differentiated anyway. The, the point of the parable would be no different if there were three of each or seven of each or one of each. Or even more complex parables where there is a little difference between multiple characters, but still they basically serve the same function. The priest and the Levite who both pass by on the road as compared to the Samaritan who helps. The uh, servants who make uh, ten talents or five talents, not identical, but they're both uh, praised with the same language and uh, function as the positive foil to the negative servant who did not even attempt to invest and was uh, punished. Is there a thesis here, I wondered? I began to read voraciously to see if uh, anybody had ever said anything like this. And I started to find that on almost every parable with uh, a master figure and two or more subordinates that uh, somebody had. But they had never combined that insight with others who had said the same thing into uh, a grand theory. I also discovered that on those same passages, usually uh, among scholars who were looking for just one main point, there were two or three competitors for that one main point that people were trying to choose from. Is the Good Samaritan about... Uh, going and doing likewise and loving those in acute need. Jesus ends the story with that command. But you don't need a priest and a Levite as a negative foil to make that point. So there, there must be a lesson here about uh, not allowing religiosity to uh, stand in the way of true love. And there were expositors who said, that's the real point. And then there were others that said, yes, but um, you could have had that dynamic. And many rabbinic parables did have that dynamic by having clergy as the, the bad example and then an ordinary pious lay Jew as the positive example. You don't put in a Samaritan unless you're creating the shock value that even one's enemy is one's neighbor. I discovered there were three main points competing among interpreters who believed in one main point for the one main point of the parable of the Good Samaritan. And going all the way back to my seminary days when Grant Osborne in particular, who's written a major hermeneutics textbook, I had it in typed mimeographed outline form, and some of you don't even know what a mimeographed machine is. See me later. See, there's not even enough reaction. Um, he, he taught us to regularly ask the question when there were competing views of a passage, uh, could it be both and? And I asked of, of parable interpretations, could it be both and? And for three-pronged parables, could it be both and and? Somewhere along that path, I ran into some structural analyses 
of the parables. And now, there we go. And applying what I read to the whole corpus of Jesus' parables, I realized that about two-thirds of them fit into this triangular and three-pronged diagram structure of a master and a good and a wicked subordinate, including pairs or groups of good or wicked subordinates. That occasionally you had a, a unifying figure, like in the Good Samaritan, but someone who wasn't in a position of power, but in this case very much powerlessness, but who was still very able to choose between the good and the bad examples. Occasionally you had, as with yesterday's parable of the unforgiving servant, a master with a, a subordinate and then a subordinate under that subordinate. But you still had three key characters and three lenses through which you could read the story. I discovered that about one-sixth of the parables had only two main characters, either a master with a solitary subordinate or uh, a good example and a bad example, but without a master figure explicitly present. And then the remaining six, sixth did in fact uh, fall into Euliker's model of a single main character and seemingly a single main point. I began to immerse myself in rabbinic parables. There are hundreds of them from the ancient rabbis, uh, just over 200 from the first three centuries of the uh, Christian era or the common era. And while they are not exactly like Jesus' parables, um, there are often similarities in structure and in content, uh, sometimes fairly striking. Here's one from uh, an early midrash on the book of Leviticus, chapter 26. Speaking of God's uh, choosing the Israelites among the nations of the world, it's like a king who hired many laborers, and along with them was one laborer that had worked for him many days. All the other laborers went also. He said to this one special laborer, I will have regard for you. The others who have worked for me only a little, to them I will give small pay. You, however, will receive a larger recompense. Even so, both the Israelites and the peoples of the world sought their pay from God. And God said to the Israelites, My children, I will have regard for you. The peoples of the world have accomplished very little for me. And I will give them but a small reward. You, however, will receive a large recompense. Therefore, it says, I will have regard for you. A king... Two groups of subordinate workers. The king stands for God. The one group of workers stands for the Israelites. The other group of workers stands for the, the Goyim, the Gentiles. Structure is identical. The dynamic is identical to the parables of Jesus. It even reminds us of the labors in the vineyard in Matthew 20, except that there Jesus makes the point about the equality of all the workers, which if this was already circulating in oral form in the first century, would have been that much more striking in comparison to the Jewish story. Somewhere along about this time, I really started to get excited. I think I might graduate. I think I might have something to write. I don't know if it's right, but I knew that wasn't a prerequisite for submitting a 
satisfactory thesis. You just had to make a persuasive case for something that, that, that was plausible. Howard Marshall was a, a wonderful supervisor in many ways, but he wasn't one given to giving out exaggerated compliments. So when I would give him a chapter and he would say, well, it's at least as good as the alternatives, I took that as huge praise. And I continued to look at the parables and saw, yes, I could put labels into the slots in my diagrams. And uh, I've already referred to those three examples. The farmer with the seed growing in a way he doesn't know how, but somehow it makes it to a great harvest. Mark 4, 26 to 29, the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. Or uh, the treasure hunter or the uh, fisherman searching for the one great pearl. Simple one-pointed parables. I kept on going. I kept finding things. I kept trying to make sure I wasn't just finding what I wanted to find, but many workers, but they could be grouped together into categories. I never found another parable structured exactly like the Good Samaritan, but uh, the unjust steward the parable that is alternately called the unjust judge and the persistent widow. It was amazing how commentators debated, is that about uh, God being so much more willing to grant justice than this unjust judge was, or is it about believers need to be persistent and bold in prayer? And I kept saying, why can't it be both? Is that such a revolutionary thought? Well, if you could only make one main point, it was. But what chapter and verse was that in? The man who built his house on the rock and the one who built his house on the sand. Implicitly, you could say the storm was the God figure, but it wasn't explicit. There wasn't an actual character there. How about the little man who didn't calculate the cost of building a tower and so was unable to complete it? Or the general taking an army to battle who didn't realize the opposition had twice the number and so he had to surrender? And by now, if you have any curiosity where I am in my notes, I've gone all the way over to uh, the first three points on the back side of page two. You can just write as I did in my notes, see the PowerPoint slides. And if anybody would like this, uh, just email me. I'll be happy to send you a copy. It's not copyrighted. If I was on to anything, how would one guard against the excesses of so many years of allegorization. It struck me there were two principles that stood out above all others to answer that question. As long as I limited main points or main prongs or main scenes of a passage to the main characters, I would never have more than three. Maybe four in the parable of the wicked tenants, depending on how you took it, but there was only that one possible exception. And what you learned, the lessons or principles that came to you as you read through the story from the perspective of the various main characters or elements, had to fit something that a Jewish, largely rural audience in Galilee in the first third of the first century could have been imagined to come up with. 
It wouldn't do to say that um, the Good Samaritan stood for Jesus and the wine and oil were the sacraments and the inn was the church and the innkeeper was the Apostle Paul because Nobody yet had reason to relate Jesus to a Samaritan, nor had the sacraments been established, nor had the church been established, and the guy who would later be called the Apostle Paul was still going under Saul of Tarsus and had quite a different character. It was anachronistic. Keep it in its historical context. So that was uh, almost 20 years ago. Everything else I want to say today, this afternoon, and tomorrow is more recent. What's happened since? And how should we react to it? I was thrilled that a smattering of evangelicals and occasionally one or two other scholars said... uh, Blomberg seems to be on to something. Like most scholars, he probably pushes it too far. He's gotten a a good idea, and he tries to force the evidence to work in every single case, but we can forgive him for that. But but he's probably on to something, and uh, most liberals uh, just ignored the work like they ignore most evangelicals, And uh, one or two said, well, the point is he doesn't go far enough. He still says there are some constraints in interpreting parables. James Breach, B.B. Scott, Dominic Crossan are perhaps among the three most famous who took that last approach and have written large books on the parables saying that, in essence, they are point-less. doesn't mean they don't serve a purpose. They're not pointless in that sense. But you simply can't boil them down to propositional statements. B.B. Scott, for example, takes... uh, the parable of the widow and the unjust judge and says... As with the other parables, this is about how one experiences the kingdom. Doesn't teach content. And so, quoting Scott, a hearer of this parable discovers the kingdom under the guise not of a just judge, but of a pestering widow who exposes her own shamelessness, continually pressing her cause on a dishonorable judge. Well, okay, that's somewhat unconventionally worded, but it is a declarative sentence. It is a proposition. And even though it's a proposition about how a hearer of the parable discovers the kingdom, it has uh, an inferable lesson from it. God's people should work, even pesteringly if necessary, for just causes where injustice is rampant. Still sounds like a point, but he didn't think so. In the 90s, William Herzog wrote a book called Jesus, Pedagogue of the Oppressed, in which about half of his book, I'll talk about the other half this afternoon, argued that The parables were not stories about God's ways with human beings, but uh, about the sad realities of life under corrupt Jewish and Roman leadership that were meant to focus the problem in a very pointed fashion and generate conversation 
that might uh, begin to address the injustice, might, if we can borrow a modern slogan, begin the revolution. So the uh, man who pays all the workers equal amounts is not at all just. We know that's not just. That's the trouble with life under Rome. Some people get way too much for the little amount of work they do, and others work their tails off and barely get by. That's the problem. Okay, folks in the Galilean villages, what are we going to do about it? Interesting. We'll come back to that, but you'll have to come back. Then there were people like Charles Hedrick who have written a couple of books saying, what if we don't accept the interpretive commentary in the Gospels that these are stories about the kingdom, but simply take them as poetic wisdom, fictional narratives, they turn out to be more complex than we first give them credit for. The Pharisee and the tax collector. Can we really identify fully with either? The tax collector presumes on the mercy of God. God be merciful to me, a sinner. Doesn't promise to do anything out of gratitude. That's not the un mitigated, positive model we often think it is. But then neither is the Pharisee who prejudices things in his favor. If this isn't about God's ways in the world, then we don't have to make it fair at any point. Interesting. But there were also many cautious evangelical affirmatives, though sometimes, and I'm happy to take this uh, caveat, suggesting that calling this modified allegory might not be the best label, because allegory still in many people's minds, uh, perhaps wrongly, but nevertheless uh, does bring up the idea of finding hidden meaning in almost every detail. So, can we call these something different? Stephen Wright has written a couple of books, Tom Wright's less well-known younger brother, calling parables synecdoche, which if you still remember your hermeneutics, means a part for the whole. And he looks at six parables in particular and says, uh, we don't need to think of these as allegorical symbols for something that is quite other than what it appears. We can just think of them as representative examples of a larger class. The Good Samaritan has characters that are examples of enemies and people in distress and overly busy clergy that anybody else in those same class of individuals should relate to. And you can go down the list. I think Wright picked the six parables where his theory works the best. And because he doesn't deal with a majority of them, I'm not sure it can be generalized. But it's an interesting tweaking. Ruth Etchells in the United Kingdom wrote a book in which she preferred to call them metonymy. Dig deep into hermeneutics. Metonymy is one object used as representative of another to which it is closely related, the flag for the country, as opposed to uh, synecdoche, which is all hands on deck, 
and the hand is actually the part of the person who's supposed to come on deck. And Achelles did write a book in which, very briefly, she went through all of the parables, stressing how in most details they are very realistic to their setting and their time period. All of the dangers and attitudes and surprises reflected in the Good Samaritan or both sons in the prodigal son. You can relate to them. Characters then could have related to them. But somewhere along the way, metonymy, where these characters stand for others closely related to them, bursts into metaphor. And there is something very jarring, very unrealistic, that becomes the key to uh, what the parable is all about, a good Samaritan. If that doesn't sound oxymoronic, you're not thinking as a first century Jew. The lavish welcome home for the prodigal, without any punishment, without any period of penance, Nobody acted that way, but apparently God does, and that's a key to understanding the parable. And that's what I just said. Two works, and with this I'm done, have preferred the terminology. John Sider, not Ron, John Sider, former professor at Westmont College of English Literature who wrote a book called Interpreting the Parables in the mid-90s. And much more recently, Klein Snodgrass at North Park Seminary, who's written a, a huge work on the parables called Stories with Intent. Cider says the way to understand the dynamics of the characters in the stories is that you take Blomberg's triangles, except he came up with this on his own, so he doesn't acknowledge me, which I'm glad of because then maybe I really was on to something, that one character is to another as some element of God's ways with humanity are to another, with respect to a particular entity. Analogies all break down at some point, as we all know, so we have to focus on what is it that's being compared. To take the prodigal son as an example again, God is to the tax collectors and sinners that were coming to Christ that triggered the parable as the father is to the prodigal with respect to his gracious forgiveness. Maybe not in other ways, but at least in that way. The Pharisees and the scribes who are there murmuring are to God as the older son is to the father with respect to the misunderstanding that his grace creates. And the Pharisees and scribes are to the tax collectors and sinners with respect to their aloof contempt. I find that approach completely consistent with what I do. I like it. Unfortunately, the book went out of print much too quickly. But uh, I'm sure there's an Amazon used copy somewhere. Snodgrass great name. Klein's a saint just to have gone through life with it. Says that the major narrative parables are indirect communication. Some of them, like Wright's synecdoches, where the same topic is being treated as in the parable enemy love, but through different characters than the actual people in Jesus' world being addressed. 
Klein calls that single indirect communication. Others have often called these example stories. But the majority of the parables, Snodgrass says, are double indirect communication because they're about a different topic, a mustard seed. If you know nothing about the Bible and somebody says word association, mustard seed, you do not say kingdom of God. You might say ketchup. You might say hamburger. But you don't think of kingdom of God (laughs) until you understand the dynamic of the parable. These are what others have typically called parables proper. Sorry, I thought I had one more line there. I am quite happy to follow either cider or snodgrass and to a certain degree the uh, metonymists and the synecdochists as well. I think they all have latched on to a dynamic that I saw perhaps in a mirror dimly. There's a lot more to say about what people are saying today, but that's why we have two more talks. So uh, we've got about 10 minutes, according to my watch, and um, I was told somebody might have a roving microphone or else uh, you can speak in a loud voice, and I will be happy to field a few questions. Well, we want to say thank you to Dr. Craig Blomberg for that fascinating lecture, and I want everyone to know that the entire series of lectures he presented to us in 2009 are available for purchase in either CD or DVD format by simply going to beesondivinity.com slash store. You'll find a lot of material there, including these lectures by Dr. Craig Blomberg. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast. <laughs>